BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We're expected to hear more this morning from police in the city of Orange following a mass shooting yesterday, which left four people dead, including a child. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez has more. Good morning, Saul. Lily, the shooting occurred late Wednesday afternoon at an office complex. Here's Orange Police Lieutenant Jennifer Amat describing what officers found upon arriving at the scene. Upon entering the business and in the area, they have discovered four victims that are deceased on the location. One of those victims does include a child. A surviving victim, a woman who hasn't been identified, is receiving care for gunshot wounds at a local hospital. So, too, is the suspected shooter. It's unclear if he was hit by police gunfire or a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Witness Mo Reyes spoke to KTLA News about what he saw and heard. I think I heard maybe a total of about like 13 gunshots, and uh, you know I did see a dead body on the floor. The shooting was probably about 10, 15 minutes. This is the third mass shooting in the U.S. in recent weeks, following slayings in Atlanta, Georgia, that killed eight people, and a supermarket shooting in Boulder, Colorado, that killed 10. Governor Gavin Newsom is calling the mass shooting in Orange horrifying and heartbreaking. And this isn't the community's first experience with mass violence. In 1997, four people were shot and killed at a maintenance yard in Orange by a former Caltrans worker. Lily? Thank you, Saul. That was the California Report, Saul Gonzalez in Southern California. Now to the pandemic. Today, Californians 50 and older can get a COVID-19 vaccine. But as KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, news of a manufacturing problem with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine may mean fewer appointments. Future shipments of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine will be delayed after 15 million doses were ruined by an ingredient mix-up. That could impede vaccinations in L.A., where health officials are racing to get the majority of adults immunized by June. L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer. We were uh, here in L.A. County anticipating that about 20 percent of our doses over the next three months would be Johnson & Johnson doses. Because it only requires one shot, the Johnson & Johnson doses are used in populations that have trouble getting to clinics, people experiencing homelessness, as well as people with disabilities or ambulatory issues, exactly the population that needs to be vaccinated the most. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. We're going to go to the Central Valley now. First Lady Jill Biden used the occasion of Cesar Chavez Day to show support for farm workers. She visited the original headquarters of the United Farm Workers Union, known as the 40 Acres. The California Report's Alex Hall was there and brings us this report. 
I present you the First Lady of the United States, Dr. Jill Biden. While visiting the historic 40 acres in Delano, Jill Biden put a spotlight on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. That's a bill recently passed by the U.S. House of Representatives, which is expected to face an uphill battle in the Senate. If passed, it could create a path to citizenship for nearly half a million undocumented farm workers in California. President Biden has come out in support of the legislation. He believes that our work must be guided by justice and humanity. And that's exactly the kind of immigration policy he's working to build. The First Lady was joined by Governor Gavin Newsom, the Chavez family, and local, state, and federal officials. During her visit, she met with a roundtable of farmworker women and helped out at a vaccination clinic. Teresa Romero is president of the UFW. The fact that the First Lady sat down and, and talked to farm workers and heard what is important to them and heard how this Immigration Farm Workforce Modernization Act is the number one priority for them hearing that they have the support of the first lady and the president, I think it is it's just amazing. Romero said she and other members of the union spoke with the first lady and Governor Newsom about the issues farm workers are facing not only in California, but in other states as well. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Delano. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. It is baseball's opening day, and for the occasion, we decided to invite Brad Baluchian, a friend of the show. Brad spoke with my colleague Nina Thorson in 2015 from Kansas City. At the time, he was on a road trip sparked by an idea to track down all the players in a single pack of 1986 Topps baseball cards. The result is a book called The Wax Pack. Brad joins me now. Hi, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me on, Lily. Thank you so much for coming back on the California Report. So many of these players have been retired for decades now. What struck you about how these different people that you talked to managed life after baseball? Yeah, so I, we all have heard the theme, where are they now? And I like to say that my book was not only that, but also who are they now? And going a little bit deeper. And I was really surprised to see how many commonalities there were with the post-baseball experiences of these guys. Um, I call it the three D's of depression, drugs or drinking and divorce. I mean, imagine being in your mid thirties and never being able to do the one thing you've spent all your time thinking about in your life and never being able to do it again. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these guys, when they hit that point, when their baseball career was over, really struggled with that transition about what to do next. Uh, but it's I'm happy to report that most of them have come through that in a, in a good way and are you know seem very well adjusted in their lives at this point 
But that was one thing I found. Another thing I found was how many of these guys had really strained relationships with their fathers. You know, we often think about the father-son relationship in all these positive terms in terms of baseball, but there's also a, a darker side to that as well. Absolutely. There is also a lot of California in this book. You began your journey in Oakland, and when we last spoke with you here on the California Report, you were headed to visit Al Cowan's family in Downey. Cowan's, in 1986, was a player for the Seattle Mariners. He's the only one of the players in your pack who has passed away. How did you go about telling his story? Yeah, that was a challenge from the start was, what do you do with a guy that's no longer alive? So... With him, I was able to really do some on-the-ground reporting and went and tracked down his ex, his widow, who um, was not actually that thrilled to talk to me. So I ended up talking to his son and his cousin who played with him instead. And that's what actually one of my favorite chapters in the book because I was able to really explore some of the history of Compton. His cousin, Billy, took me around to all the the neighborhoods in Compton and Watts where they grew up and showed me where their childhood took place and the fields that they grew up playing on. And I think to your point about, I mean, California plays a central role in this book. You've got everything from Compton and Watts to Visalia, the Central Valley, Mm -hmm. uh, down to San Diego, because several of these players grew up there and some of them still live there. Well, I really appreciate how personal you get in this book. It is such an original idea. Brad Baluchian is the author of The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. Brad, please come back soon. Thank you very much for having me. As Stanford's women's team and UCLA's men's team prepare for the NCAA Final Four to do battle on the court, the U.S. Supreme Court took up a years-long dispute over payments to student-athletes. Alicia Jessup is associate professor at Pepperdine University, where she teaches sport law, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So first, Alicia, thoughts on yesterday's hearing. What stood out to you? Yeah, what stood out to me was just the range and diversity of questions asked by the Supreme Court justices. You had Clarence Thomas, who typically leans more conservative, probing the rationale for why college coaches' salaries have skyrocketed and something called the NCAA transfer portal. You had justices like Stephen Breyer, who tends to side with the more liberal court, asking questions signifying possibly that he might align with the NCAA in this case. So one thing that really struck me from the justices' questions was it was almost like they were trading spaces. Yeah, it's a great point. It did throw a lot of us for a loop. Um, It it does make it a lot harder to uh, prognosticate about what is going to happen, how the court will ultimately rule. What's your best guess at this point? Sure. So heading into the oral arguments, there were some sport law experts who were predicting a 9-0 to Supreme Court decision in favor of the Alston plaintiffs. And certainly that's still possible. However, hearing the questions yesterday, I think it's going to be closer. Um, yesterday, I put out onto Twitter that I think it's going to be a 6-3 to decision. I see justices Thomas and Coney Barrett dissenting and ruling in favor of the NCAA. And I could see Justice Breyer as well writing his own dissent. He raised the point that this case could have implications to industries well beyond college sport. And the industry he pointed out was the tech industry. And so I think that could cause him to write a dissent in this case. 
what would be the potential impact on the NCAA as we know it if your prediction comes true? Sure. So if the plaintiffs win this case, college athletes at the Division I level will be able to receive unlimited educational benefits. So it's not like they're going to get paid directly from this case. However, if they win, the NCAA will be found to be in violation of antitrust law by the highest court in the United States. And it will lead to some really deep questions about the legitimacy and the future of its amateurism standard especially in the wake of states enacting name, image, and likeness bills, this could be one of the biggest dominoes to fall to change the landscape of college sports as we know it. And just a programming question, how did it come to be that this hearing took place just as we're headed into the final four? Coincidence? (laughs) Yes, that is a great question. This case was actually brought initially as two separate cases. And the first case was filed on the first day of March Madness on 2014. And so I had the same thought yesterday of how ironic is it that this case that was filed on the first day of March Madness in 2014 is being heard before the Supreme Court seven years later, heading into the weekend of the final four, I don't know if you call that synchronicity, timing, irony. It certainly wasn't planned by the Supreme Court. I can tell you that. All right. Alicia Jessup, Associate Professor at Pepperdine University. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, April 1st. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere and College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! <laughs> 